business. The blog and podcast for game changers and innovators in the construction industry. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the AEC Business Podcast. I'm Arnie Heiskanen and my guest is Paul Doherty. Paul is an architect, BIM pioneer, construction innovator and smart city strategist. He's the president and CEO of the Digit Group. In China, Paul is active in building production and smart cities. Paul is a co-founder of the AEC Hackathon. He started our discussion by telling about how the AEC Hackathon came about and how it's grown into a global community. Well, thank you very much, Arnie. This is a uh, it's a remarkable time, um, and it's funny how different pieces of one's career can come together like a puzzle. You know, you don't know why sometimes you focus in on one thing, but wow, you're glad you did it because it fits into an entire ecosystem. One of those is the AC Hackathon. You know, we we were starting uh, to uh, just be very frustrated in the lack of R&D inside of the design and construction industry worldwide. Um, and it really isn't our fault. You know, we work on very uh, tight margins. Uh, we don't have a lot of free time. And our projects, we've got to pull them up out of the ground and deliver. Uh, and we can't have mistakes. Uh, and sometimes when you do an R&D, uh, you know, part of the process is to make those mistakes because you, you learn from them. In order, and I wouldn't even call them mistakes. How about uh, challenges that were unforeseen, right? Uh, that all of a sudden, wow, we thought we were getting this result, but look what this did. It's even better. Now, doing that in the field, wow, you know, I mean, subcontractors and stuff, God bless them, uh, you know, their main goal is to get in and get out as quickly as possible and do a quality job. So the idea is to, uh, you know, start to rethink, well, how do we start to introduce an R&D process into the process? So um, I met uh, a talented individual, he's a technician, uh, so very involved with code and theory and, and, and implementation called Damon Hernandez. Um, in San Francisco, and uh, we were talking about just you know the industry at large and whatnot, and his frustration because he owns a company that uh, does wood timber uh, CNC uh, type of of construction in the Pacific Northwest, um, and we we both came to the conclusion that wow you know we need to start to work together a little bit more because uh, you know it's great when you have silos of 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 expertise, but when you put those silos together, interesting things can happen. Um, and he said, well, yeah, you know, that's great. And I asked him what he was doing this week. And he goes, I'm going to go to a hackathon. I said, what's a hackathon? And he started to talk about how in the IT industry, especially in the Silicon Valley and the San Francisco Bay Area, how, uh, you know, it started actually with Sun Microsystems where they had a technology called Java and they wanted to see what the world would do with it. And instead of doing individual use cases uh, and, you know, tracking users, they just held this event over a weekend and said, you know, go hack Java, you know, break it, do what you have to do, because we have to learn what this thing is going to do. Well, now just about everyone does a hackathon in, in, if you're involved with tech, because it's a great way of starting to see how your hardware and or software or hardware software so solutions hold up. And there's lots of money involved. There's actually professional hackathon people. Uh, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year that are transacted. And that's what these guys do. So I was fascinated by it. And we, we put our heads together along with a guy named Greg Howes, uh, who actually runs the uh, timber uh, CNC home business. And what we concluded was, well, in the AEC industry worldwide, there are people that know how to code, but there's also a lot of people that don't know anything about code, but they have ideas. 
So wouldn't it be really cool to bring together people that don't code or don't know anything about hardware, but they always wanted to play with a 3D printer or a drone or a robot or just regular software because I have this idea, but I've never been able to express it and marry them up to you know, software coders, uh, hardware individuals and that type of thing and put them in a room for a weekend and let's see what happens. And that's how the UC Hackathon started. Our friends at Facebook uh, gave us their hack room, the famous hack room. Uh, and we did our first two at Facebook headquarters in Menlo Park. And it was phenomenal because it was the collision of ideas where people went there saying, you know, I have this idea, I'm going to paint a target. And then the technicians came in and they built it over a weekend to make it work. And that's the bottom line here. We weren't looking for an idea and a PowerPoint. Things had to work at the end of the weekend. And uh, so what that's morphed into over the past four years now, well, coming up in four years in November, um, is a community of about 3,000 people around the world that have been part of the hackathons um, all over the world, including in Helsinki a number of times now. Um, we've, we've brought in uh, people that uh, normally don't pay attention to the construction industry, like the mayor of Austin, Texas. Uh, we've had uh, people from uh, uh, Rovia, the Angry Birds people in Helsinki come by and, and, uh, and, and participate and, and give encouragement. Uh, we've had uh, senators. We've had uh, people from uh, the uh, White House administration come in. We've had the chief technical officer of the city of New York uh, participate. And it's really turned into this wonderful event because it's a nonprofit. All we do is just say, you know what? We're going to get sponsors for food and energy drinks, and that's about it. But at the end of the day, what we're going to do is give it away for free. That no one really hosts this, uh, owns it. This is meant to be a community thing. And lo and behold, we know that uh, Thornton Tomasetti, Balfour Beatty, and other groups have taken the hackathon idea and now implemented it into their own processes for their own business because they feel that it's a way to have technology be introduced to processes that normally are very formalized that this becomes almost a grassroots type of way of working. And it starts to marry the people that still have their assistants print out email so that so they can respond all the way down to the kids that are beyond webheads. I mean, they're into the data flows of things where documentation doesn't matter. It's about that next text. And watching those four generations all work together has just been fascinating. So I'm hopeful for the industry in that regard that, uh, you know, we started something and we like, I almost feel like we just gave it a little peck and just watch how the tsunami works. Um, and that's been very, very satisfying, Arnie. Um, I think that, you know, the more that the industry starts to take a mirror to itself, um, we will start to discover that we're not all bad. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is a BIM pioneer. Next, we'll hear his ideas on what BIM should actually be. Um, yeah, we, we have our struggles, especially with BIM, uh, which, you know, when we start to take a look at what BIM means, I think that the Chinese uh, are probably going to leapfrog us big time because they have not been constrained with the idea that BIM is a three-dimensional drawing. You know, it's not, you know, that's one of the outputs, uh, you know, everyone's focusing on the geometry and calling things families and just all this other garbage. It comes down to data points and how work gets done. Um, being part of the original Revit team is a, a remarkable exercise. Uh, I was actually a, a 1099 contractor, we call them in the United States, where I was there to help out with their sales and marketing team. Uh, and we were called Charles River Software at the time. Um, and we brought in uh, a CEO 
uh, who helped uh, with uh, positioning us and renaming us Revit uh, so that we would be attractive as an acquisition. Uh, we were called Parametric CAD at the time. Um, and uh, the, you know, uh, you know, the the actual uh, developers of the software, are, uh, you know, were were just wonderful in pushing what the concept could be. But we quickly realized that this this was not a design tool; um, it was a virtual design and construction tool, which is why we have Bimwash. Uh, you know, the majority the majority of architectural or engineering uh, BIM. Um, is okay from the aspect that this is the design intent, but it's unusable when you're trying to actually build something. And this is a worldwide issue because it's been promoted as this is your design tool, yet it was never built for that. Um, BIM is much better as not an authoring tool, but rather as a data management tool, a project control tool. So when we started out uh, taking a look at what we were doing with uh, uh, working with individual smart buildings, and then we would get like a campus where we'd have multiple smart buildings. We were creating a multi-BIM environment by natural occurrence. And what we needed to do about 12 years ago was to start to take the idea of, of an individual Revit model and start to marry it to other things. And what we found was the space between the buildings was where the value was, right? Where, where all of a sudden you have an interaction uh, that starts to define either a corridor, like you know, sidewalks or streets. Um, but more importantly, with the data, we we would be able to start to quickly make some assessments and start to realize that the analysis of BIM was much more important than who was doing the right mouse click to do like a cool shape. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, going to this university and watching right mouse click stuff does not excite me. What excites me is seeing that we can actually take other tools like a gaming engine and be able to take the geometry of BIM and then rip out the data and allow you to start to take an analysis of like, let's say if it's a hospital campus or a campus of a university, which is where we started, and start to have those relationships start telling a story such as how much energy am I using as an individual building, as this cluster or the entire campus? Uh, what, what's our greenhouse gas emissions for real? Like not, you know, analysis through paralysis or, go, or going through, you know, spreadsheets. Let's start taking the 3D environment of the built environment and start looking at it in that way. So we were way early to the market with this thing. Uh, we had a spectacular failure because being involved with Revit was great. Uh, you know, we got purchased by Autodesk. I was part of a team called Buzzsaw, which was also then purchased by Autodesk. I was part of a team called Tri. Uh, Tririga, uh, which uh, is a facility management tool that was purchased by IBM. And I'm going, this is great as an architect. I'm selling more software than I am buildings. This is awesome. But what an interesting thing happened uh, was that we came to the market way too early. We were in Singapore. Uh, we modeled the entire country, uh, above ground assets and below ground assets. And we were starting the process of identifying the data points of transportation, water usage, this type of thing, when we literally ran out of money. And, and what we did was, uh, you know, I left that company, we formed the Digit Group, and I decided why are we making tools for others when we should be using the tools for ourselves? And taking the concepts of having the space between the buildings be important, why are we only considering like a university? Let's go big. Let's look at high performance urban environments and create cyber physical relationships. And this is the new tone of what's called the fourth age of the industrial revolution, which is the cyber-physical relationships. If you can lock down your data, not to the point of how we do as-built today, which is garbage, 
but I'm talking about the data points of where that VAV box is or where that light switch is down to that level. And you can then geospatially locate that somewhere latitude and longitude, positive Z or negative Z axis. You've now created a trust relationship of the accuracy and the authentication that that piece of data is now authentic and can be, can be trusted. Which means that I can have a whole bunch of data points talking to another building, which means I can now start to transact. This is called blockchain. This is how Bitcoin became currency. What we're seeing is the, the transactions and the conversations between buildings using machine learning and eventually artificial intelligence will create the smart city if we like it or not. The idea is about locking that down and having those trust relationships to say, uh, let's say there's a transaction, not so much of currency, but of energy, power, so that I know that my building is performing at a very high level. There's not as many people in here today because there's an offsite meeting. So I, the, the, the purchasing off the grid of that energy, I can now say that there's a level that I purchase too much. So I have excess energy to sell at the peak time of business. I talk to my building across the street and outside of the, of the power company, I can now start to exchange for money the actual power non-usage because this building is, is, is going to have to purchase off the grid, but I can actually short sell that. This is how it's all going to happen in a flash. This is now uh, implemented in England uh, through a group called Future Decisions. So this isn't like you know fantasy. There's companies doing this right now, but now to scale that, that's when things become really interesting. And now Paul talks about the challenges and opportunities in China. So when, we so when we take a look at China, because they've not taken on BIM the way that we did, which is to create a three-dimensional electronic pencil, right? Um, they're starting to rethink things because they have to. They have pro programs like Sponge City programs to help with their stormwater runoff, uh, where the majority of the cities that were built after 1949 were sized at a point where they only thought there were going to be one or two million people in these new cities. There's 12 to 15 million people there, right? So the, their infrastructure is just, it's collapsing. And this is across the country. And if there's one thing you've got to learn about China is that the number one goal is to keep the Communist Party in power. You have to understand it's not money. It's not trade. Those are the elements that affect their power. And as long as you understand that and accept it, you can, you can play in China as a business person. Um, and that means that face and power are more important than how much money you have in your bank. So saving face is a big deal. I'm always giving the proper types of, of, uh, of, of ways of thinking so that you never go into uh, you know, central government and say, you know, your cities were undersized. What you say is you've had a population growth and here's some solutions, right? Uh, so, you know, it, it's that type of tact that you have to take there uh, to a point where uh, when you start to introduce BIM, you can't, you can't use it as an AEC tool. Um, it just won't work. Um, the ways that I've seen BIM work very well uh, is actually through uh, pictures. <laughs> uh, the, majority of the, the majority of workers, and uh, again, the, the way that you budget uh, large-scale projects and actually any building project in China is the exact polar opposite to the Western world. Uh, labor is very, very, very cheap, but equipment, uh, you know, FF&E, that type of stuff is very expensive. So materials and equipment are more expensive than the people, which means that budgets are totally upside down because in, in the Western world, you know, labor is very expensive, but, you know, we have commodity markets that keep things kind of relatively low. 
right? So when we're dealing with BIM, there's two things that if you can get the accuracy correct through, through a proper QAQC process, like start hiring subcontractors that know how to swing a hammer because they will let you know how to build it virtually. All of our teams, we invite in our subtrades as part of the design team and we pay them for it. That's a big difference in China. We do not just have a bunch of designers sitting around thinking that they know how a building goes together. No, we actually invite them in. And guess what? There's a lot of learning going on uh, because now all of a sudden those details that you thought were perfect, well, no, maybe not. You know, the guy that's out there that's putting in the HVAC systems wondering why you keep on doing the same damn detail that way because that's not how it's done. So again, it's a learning environment that allows us then to put together a cyber version of that particular uh, uh, you know, constructability end of things that now starts to affect our designs. I mean, our designs are beautiful. We do not build rectangles or squares. Uh, they're very expressive. Our buildings are not machines. They're part of an organism, which means that we really need to rethink how we attack the problem of, uh, of design of the built environment and attack the notion of what is an urban environment, what's a city. Because when you start to take into account in China that you have cheap labor, the equipment's more expensive and the materials, which means that BIM can start to drive the process of understanding those quirks. So that when you start to take a look at your critical path, we are now in the midst of industrializing the built environment so that certain subtrades will go the way of the dodo bird. We're blowing up how a building goes together because all of everyone has been taking a look at the critical path and the work breakdown structure in such a way that they say, you know what, we've done it like this and because it's human beings swinging hammers and putting up sticks, right? What happens when that goes away? We're talking about a totally different script. And now Paul gives us a glimpse of his manufacturing activities in China. Uh, we own a factory right now in Changshu, China, which is northwest of uh, Shanghai on the way to Suzhou. Uh, it's about 500 meters long. Uh, we're actually building out five more that are one kilometer long. And what we're doing is that we're manufacturing uh, <laughs> great designed 2,500 square foot single family homes. Uh, and we have the raw materials come in one side while pops out the other is a, uh, a zero defect home at 1,000 US dollars per square meter cost installed uh, that pops out in seven minutes. Seven minutes. He, People on, on social media went wild, just saying that can't be done. It can't be done. Well, it can when you start to think about components and you start to think about if you can do BIM at such a level that you start to cut out certain trades because everything is, is laminated and we're creating passive design for energy where the thickness of that material now becomes things like a trome wall. Right, that you don't have to just stick solar panels everywhere to say that you're LEED certified and green. That's called bad design. You know, when I went to school, passive design was good design. So why aren't we doing that? And now that we have the fact that we can actually have orders come in for 4,000 units, 10,000 units, 40,000 units, and we could supply that and do it right and have beautiful designs that are quality standards because it's in a factory, and that we're constantly learning uh, through this process. Uh, that is just one example in the housing market alone that we're seeing uh, just a sea change. Right now, our, our margins are astronomical on this uh, because we've cut out so much of the glut 
and you know, and that type of thing. Now, that, this can't happen unless you have good BIM. So that's why China is going to leapfrog everyone because we're thinking differently about what are the control mechanisms that that can take certain uh, professions out of the way and still deliver a quality product that people will fall in love with. Because this isn't about speed just for speed's sake or saying that we've done something cool with, with, with manufacturing that hasn't been done before. Our cycle times are about getting a product that a person has fallen in love with because they've been able to choose it. Go up on our website and we have certain constraints that depending on your budget, you can actually have the rules already embedded in there so that you know you're putting it together and you do it with your family. Instead of binge watching House of Cards, how about, how about binge your home and, and, and have everyone involved and have them emotionally involved with this? This is what the Chinese are getting. They're, they're having people no longer build these, you know, Soviet-style, you know, uh, you know, blocks of, of, of terrible design just to stick people into it. They're realizing that we can't build the ghost cities anymore. There's 16 ghost cities in China. And they're saying, let's, let's do away with that. You know, let's do something different. And um, uh, it's, it's just remarkable to watch the supply chains get, 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 get into place, to watch the governments start to say, wow, you know, this is something that we can say, not just made in China, but created in China. And there's a pride involved with that. So yeah, to answer your question of uh, half an hour ago, and I'll take a breath here, um, China is a remarkable place right now because they don't realize that they're breaking the rules. They're just getting stuff done. I asked Paul if China is going to be the next construction superpower. They will be the manufacturer of majority of the assemblies uh, in the world for a period of time. Um, but this is the interesting piece. Um, we are not Chinese, right? Um, we've developed something from scratch. Uh, we have three of the largest CNC machines in the world uh, on our assembly line. Uh, we've figured out uh, because of our experience as a team. Uh, I was a former uh, Fortune 500 corporate officer for the sixth largest home builder in the world. So I know about production building. I, I, I was responsible for 20,000 homes put up in the U.S. here in 18 different states, 480 communities with $8.5 billion in revenue. Uh, listen on the New York Stock Exchange a whole bit. So I knew the drivers of markets, uh, and we understood how certain processes needed to be changed. And we thought before implementing, if we're going to do it inside a factory, because a lot of our uh, competitors, I was with K-Hubnamian Homes, a lot of our competitors like DR Horton, Syntex, uh, uh, Pole Brothers, Pulte Homes, they were all getting into prefab business, right? But they, were, they were doing them in smaller modules, and they were still following the schedule of stick construction, right? So but you, you have to throw out the old schedule in order to think more of a cycle time, including out the field. So I was responsible for taking Avenimian uh, homes for these McMansions that were created uh, down from 132 days down to 69 using a scheduling technique called even flow production. Uh, I was very proud of that 69 day schedule that we started a home and closed a home every day, right? Uh, but we're now in a cycle time of the seven minutes of the components that we, 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 we get it out to the field uh, on the average, uh, depending on the local jurisdiction, uh, we are averaging one week cycle times from the minute it lands on the site to the, to, to, to the point that the people can move in their furniture and hand over the keys. I thought 69 days was good. We're down to seven, you know, like, so 
part of the problem with the panelization module of business up until now um, is that the, you know, I, I challenged our design team as we were literally manufacturing our, our assembly lines from scratch, right? Because none of this equipment ever existed before. So we had to create it ourselves. The idea is how do you now allow that particular structure when it's out in outside of the controlled environment of the factory, how does it sound when you close the door? Does it sound like it rattles, like what most modular construction is today? It, it sounds and it feels cheap. And it's very frustrating because people are trying to make their money with their margins and they cut out certain things that are the whole reason why you fall in love with a home, which is you want that door when it slams shut to sound like a Mercedes Benz or a BMW car. When you, you want to hear that chunk, you want that stability. This is my home, right? And right now, uh, because we are using a combination of the uh, of what's called uh, cross timber, uh, sorry, cross laminated timber or CLT, which gives you the grain of the wood is done at ninety degree angles, which gives you a, you know a greater uh, uh, strength uh, of the material. We don't do that for our floors. We actually use steel, tubular steel that actually then uh, encases a uh, a lightweight concrete, and that gives us our base. Most people, when they, when they do one type of material, they just do the entire thing, right? I mean, it, it's been a maturity of the industry of seeing, you know, I don't want my house to look like a, sh a shipping container. There's actually people out there that take shipping containers and make them homes. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, <laughs> like think this through, guys. Um, but when we start to see that, uh, you know, the shipping of these things now have built-in things like built-in inspections so that we can close up our walls, which is why we get our seven-minute cycle times of the creation of these modules, because we invite the building inspectors, the local plan examiners, the people that, that provide permits to the factory in China to see it, what we're doing. Uh, we actually use this connection system for our MEP uh, that is a European innovation that's already CE certified, right? So... So we take down a lot of the uh, local issues that people have never seen things before that we educate them and actually have them guide us also about certain things that they want to see. So every home that comes off these factory lines is, is taped almost like a YouTube stream. And we hold on to that so that if the local plan examiner or the, let's say the electrical inspector wants to see what we're doing that was done right and that home then gets certified, that's how we're doing it remotely. So that, and then it's saved. It's like creating a digital birth certificate for that home. And that home will always communicate to us back in the cloud because now we start to see how the performance happens, which means we can make design changes. So it's a really, really interesting time to be in China. Um, it's been uh, a, I've been in mainland China since 1994, uh, have very close relationships at the highest level of government, also with uh, the, the, the locals just through being there, uh, living there, lived in Shanghai for a number of years. Uh, and now I'm, uh, we have three offices, uh, one in uh, Shanghai, uh, one in Guangzhou, which is a gorgeous place. I'd love to invite you, Arnie, if you ever come to China. Um, it's, it's an old warehouse by Swire Properties um, uh, in the old Canton region. Uh, and it's right up against the Pearl River. We've uh, now outfitted to be a modern office. Uh, it's just a remarkable place. And then, uh, of course, the SAR of Hong Kong. That's our. That's uh, more or less our global headquarters. Um, the ability now to work with the different uh, institutions is is key. 
uh, the design institutes, of course, uh, which are more or less the factories of uh, architecture and engineering in China are key. Uh, and the feeder systems like, you know, uh, 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 you know Tsinghua University uh, and others that are, are, are educating all these folks. We're starting to see the sea change that, you know, even the schools of architecture need to be combined at least at some point in it. In, in a student's career uh, with things like the, the uh, School of Construction or Construction Management, Engineering, because this is all tying together in such a way that designers need to realize that just because you can use a technology like you know, Rhino or something like that to make, tw- to, to make twisty shapes buildings, should you? Just because you can, should you? Are, are you creating visual you know, f- vomit? Uh, you know, like 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 what's happening in Pudong, you know, I mean, or in Dubai. I mean, not that I have strong opinions about that, but, you know, let's start rethinking about what this means. And I was uh, uh, you know, very fond of just saying before that, you know, we have this very unique opportunity to create a new style of architecture that you have a conversation with nature. You don't control it. And I think, you know, contextualization, you know, if we're building in Finland, uh, it's a much different environment than building in Nigeria. There are d- so many different variables that are different that we're now looking at, uh, you know, ingredients uh, and calling our innovations ingredients uh, in the same way that a chef would actually take a look at all these different ingredients and see something and do like a fusion that's never been done before. Paul is also very excited about smart cities. So that's the way that we're looking at the world, starting with China first, that we have uh, a tremendous amount of innovation in the world of energy, water, education, healthcare, um, just all these different elements that make up to today's modern uh, uh, urban environment. And we're saying, wouldn't it be really interesting to take certain foundation pieces of things like BIM, uh, being able to use that as a control element so that you create a city operating system so that people know how to start to manage things like autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles, in my mind, um, are one of those ingredients that create new recipes. So as a chef, as a master planner, and now a real estate developer, we now to need, we need to rethink how cities are created. Um, we usually put constraints uh, to control nature in order to start a city, and that usually means a grid. In our cities, the grid doesn't exist. Because just like 120 years ago, there was a brand new innovation called an elevator or a lift, fundamentally changed the shape of cities. Autonomous vehicles are fundamentally going to change the shape of every city because you don't need to have a grid. You don't need to have wide roads. They can be narrow roads. There's no need for traffic light, no need for a stop sign. Most importantly, no need for a parking lot. These things continuously move because of things like kinetic energy, where you don't even need to stop to plug in. Because, because they're EVs, they're electric vehicles. But through technologies like piezoelectric, that is a compression technology, isn't it interesting that you can actually have wireless charging just by implementing this felt, this material that's piezo-enabled inside of the tire so that as it's continually moving, it doesn't need to charge, it's constantly being recharged. That exists today. Uh, buildings and technologies have life cycles. I asked Paul how to manage that in smart buildings and cities. Yeah, um, great question because you you can take the innovations of today and look like tomorrow land in 10 years. Right? 
So the idea of how you set up uh, these, these greenfield urban environments where we have 31 on the boards right now, 31, one coming up out of the ground in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's actually the home of the world's tallest building going up right now called the Jeddah Economic Tower. It'll be one kilometer tall when it's complete. We're up about 64 floors up out of the ground. It'll top off at 253 stories, if you can imagine. Um, so we had to rethink what happens when you build a vertical city at one kilometer along with a horizontal city that helps support that tower that's going to house 35,000 people at any moment in time, 24 7, 365 days a year. So we, we were rethinking some things, such as, you know, piezoelectric may be great today, but what's the next big breakthrough with power? What about storage, you know, battery storage, those types of things? So what we do is we do not design our urban environments with just one innovation in mind. You've got to weave it together like a fabric so that you can easily take one fabric out and, and potentially either throw it away or put another piece in place. The needs also grow as your population grows. So the way that we design is actually from a CBD. Uh, with a transportation element, it's almost called a transit-enabled uh, development, um, where you are creating the environment that people and goods and services are going to need to move around. That will always be in a city. Those are fundamentals. Uh, we also understand that by going only with the CBD, we're limiting ourselves for the complete design to five square kilometers, Okay, uh, which means that we can at least get a, a density that gives us economies of scale for energy, water usage, uh, you know, uh, waste management, all that stuff that people talk about, we can actually implement. And we give ourselves 15 years to build that out. Our challenge as a real estate developer, of course, is to provide enough of the capital assets at a cost and a quality level that meets the goals of that particular city, meaning, how many police stations, fire stations, civil defense, uh, court systems, uh, government buildings, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we have that down uh, to a science about how we build out those things. And they're not cookie cutter because we take into account that, you know, when we build in Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, certain materials would stand out like a sore thumb uh, if we use the same materials like for our Helsinki, right? It doesn't match. So we, we, we're very sensitive to what that means so we're not like the international school of like like bousier that said you know put buildings on pilotas you know sticks and that's the rule for the entire world you know that that gets us brasilia <laughs> or worse canberra right you know, no one likes those places there's no soul there's nothing to make people fall in love with that piece of dirt so our job is to make sure that two things happen number one we have a safe and secure environment those are primary goals, which means that BIM's main goal is to protect and provide safety. Okay, so you can imagine getting back to our main product uh, pro project with the Jeddah Economic Tower. Um, we're building the world's tallest target for terrorism. It's a bullseye, right? Especially in that region. So our primary goal of BIM is to provide enough safety and enough. Uh, 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 reassurance to the inhabitants of that tower that we've created a machine learning artificial intelligence agent very similar to Siri for your iPhone for the entire building. It's a building Siri. Well, the building understands you, it learns about you, and it, and, and it protects you. Um, it, it, the cyber physical relationship that I talked about means that the perfection of that building's BIM allows it to do lockdown, lockout in case of physical terrorism. Uh, natural disasters, uh, or maybe it's just a windy day and you're feeling the tower go and you say, uh, you know, what, Siri, 
you know, is this normal? Yes, don't don't worry. This is how it's been designed. You know, uh, in approximately two hours, it'll lessen. You know, those types of things. You've got to get down to the human level, and that's where this new relationship with buildings and people. That's how you fall in love. That's where you gain trust, and that means that we have to make sure that our BIM is the most trustworthy piece of data on the planet. Again, using blockchain, you can now start those transactions of understanding what's the situation. We're giving brains to the central nervous system that has been created over the past 30 years, 40 years now, called the internet. The internet was a primitive central nervous system of a body. We're now starting to grow a brain. And this gets very exciting because now when you say smart cities, we're not so much saying intelligence level, it's about safety and security first. So as you design these cities, five square kilometers, 15 year build out, um, inviting other developers in, of course, we're setting the standards of what needs to be done there. Uh, so we can invite in other architects, other designers, other engineers to express themselves, hopefully they're locals, so that they're starting to contribute to their own environment. So how do you keep that sustained? Just by continuing that process. Do not put the constraints in place saying that here's a machine, we're going to drop this ship, you know, we're, we're, we're going to drop ship this thing, and that's it. It's a continuous learning environment that has built in obsolescence. That's the beauty of today's new modern cities. We're having a big problem right now, specifically here in the US, where our infrastructure is literally falling apart because they drop ship things in and they did not think of the life cycle approach. Um, now, that means that there's a lot of money up front, right? Not necessarily. Again, if we're starting to cut out things like being able to create affordable housing with beautiful design and great quality, um, uh, you know, with housing, how do we do that now with cities? And this is our challenge. This is where we're right in the middle of exploring. Um, and we have some uh, wonderful you know, customers and partners, uh, like the, the, the government of uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, the uh, municipality of Dubai, uh, the Australian government uh, in Canberra, uh, the New Zealand government in Wellington, um, and then, of course, our friends in Beijing. And now Paul talks a little bit more about how he does business. Uh, getting involved with China Uh, after working privately for so long, just about uh, five years ago, I was introduced uh, to the Office of Science and Technology at the White House. And the Obama administration loved what we were trying to do. Uh, a lot of it had to do with that we were American, right? And they wanted to see some exports, either services or goods-wise. So we got involved with the um, Department of Commerce with Secretary Prickster, and she held a trade mission. Now, we're still a small company. Um, we're not large, but we manage large companies to actually build out these things. That's the business model, where we're like an executive project management office that we sit on the side of either governments and or real estate developers, where then we become their partners to manage this data and then bring the innovations in place and actually build these things out and pop them up out of the ground. Well, that was great for Secretary Prickster because that, you know I was sitting next to people from Boeing and GE and like all these big companies that, you know, they're making multi-billion dollar sales for defense and all this other stuff, except that we had the cool stuff, <laughs> you know, I could show on an iPhone, an entire city in 3D and show how to manage it. Right. So she introduced us uh, again, just about five years ago to, uh, to central government, uh, first through President Xi and then Premier Lee. And uh, we've never looked back. Uh, we're very friendly with the secretary uh, of, of Guangdong province, who seems to be the up and coming next president. Uh, after this cycle is done, uh, we've been involved with the mayor of Wuhan, mayor of, uh, and the secretary of uh, Qingdao, and of course, uh, you know, our home in Shanghai. And now Paul mentions the big challenges 
that China is facing right now and how to deal with them? Uh, the different districts are just loving this, this rethinking uh, because they have two big problems, uh, actually three. One is their water. Their water is more polluted than their air, if you can imagine. Um, and they're very c connected that way. So anything that we can do to help the process of starting to bring down the pollution and the contamination, uh, both of the air and the water are key. So that's number one and two. Number three is that there's a little over 300 million people today migrating from the Western provinces of China into the East Coast cities looking for work because these are kind of peasants, if you want to call them that, but I call them agricultural workers, right? Where they, they've mechanized their food supply chain so well that the jobs have all dried up. So you can imagine the entire population of the United States is moving into overpopulated Eastern cities that don't have those jobs. And remember what I said before, the Chinese government's main job is to keep in power. This will create social instability. So when you hear about the smart cities going up in China, it's not just about doing the cool stuff and just, just about creating a quality of life so that you can breathe the air and drink the water. It's about how do you take these people and let them fall in love with something that doesn't exist right now and don't make them those cities. The, the last five-year plan had these cities, these satellite cities outside of the mid-China uh, region, like Wuhan and places like that, Xi'an, where they built out these satellite cities uh, to accommodate a million people and above. And guess what these migrants did? They walked right by it. So you, ha you have 16 cities that are not populated, yet you have this tsunami of human, uh, you know, humankind ready to mow down the east part of China. So this is about a timing issue, and there's an urgency, which is why I can say with authority, they're going to leapfrog bin because they have to, not because they want to. Um, and it's being driven by power, the most important thing in China, not money, power. So yeah, it's a fascinating time to have a front row seat to this. As you've learned by now, Paul is super active. I asked him what he is going to do next. <laughs> I'm actually going to eat some breakfast. But, <laughs> but actually, um, uh, two things. Um, uh, I'm going to be back in China uh, in, uh, in two weeks from today. Uh, and we are going to be... Um, making some pretty major announcements with, uh, in regards to uh, transportation. Uh, we have some next generation uh, public transportation that we are uh, going to announce with uh, well-known initiatives. Uh, I can't say the first name, but the second name is Loop. <laughs> so uh, we're going to make some ma major announcements there where uh, we will be partnering up with the, uh, the Loop people uh, that would allow us to be the last mile through two meter buses two meter buses uh, that then connect together uh, to form a chain uh, that can uh, then also separate and move. Uh, so we've had our first uh, major announcement with that. Um, it's called Next Future Transportation. Uh, we have a contract with the Road Transportation Authority of Dubai, and uh, we're delivering our first units in December, 100 of them. And this will be the transportation system for the World Expo 2020. So this is a coming out party for Dubai to show that they have a legacy of this is how we're going to move people in air conditioned spaces because it's a very harsh condition to get to the last mile. 
So using uh, the equivalent of Uber uh, in uh, the Middle East is Kareem. And so they're a partner of ours to make that happen. What we're doing in China is very similar, uh, but uh, their uh, equivalent, uh, actually Uber owns a piece of it, it's called Didi. Uh, so that's our big announcement and we'll be making that and actually showcasing these autonomous uh, electric vehicles. Uh, again, that will change the shape of cities. Um, so it's exciting times, Arnie. Well, that was the interview with Paul Doherty. It was a little bit longer than usual, but I hope you enjoyed it. Check out for the links and more information in the show notes. Bye-bye.